This week's episode of the Feminist Survival Project 2020 is brought to you by Never Conspire with a Sinful Baron by Renee Ann Miller, the fourth in her infamous Lords series. Last season, Lady Nina Trent fell for a scoundrel. This year, she intends to choose more wisely, and when a duke more interested in fox hunting than womanizing comes to town, Nina thinks him the perfect catch. Sadly, he doesn't seem to notice her, but Lord Elliot Haverford, Baron Ralston, a notorious flirt, has a proposition. He'll not only pretend to vie for her hand, hoping to draw forth the Duke's competitive nature, he'll also give Nina lessons in seduction. An aristocrat in possession of two dilapidated properties must be in want of a fortune. Elliot's proposition is a subterfuge, for he hopes to capture Nina's hand and her dowry by slyly seducing her himself, though he feels guilty over his deception. Their interludes, filled with dancing, flirtation, and increasingly heated kisses, are impossible to regret until he realizes he has unwittingly placed Nina in grave danger. Never Conspire with a Sinful Baron by Renee Ann Miller is available wherever books are sold. Find out more at kensingtonbooks.com. Welcome to another episode of the Feminist Survival Project 2020. If you believe being a woman is neither a moral failing nor a medical condition, and you're exhausted and overwhelmed by, you know, 2020, but still you're worried that you're not doing enough, this podcast is for you. I am Emily. I'm Amelia. And we are the authors of a book called Burnout. Our goal with this podcast is to provide evidence-based strategies for coping amidst the nightmarish hellscape that is 2020, so that we can survive long enough to vote in November. Ultimately, that's what it comes down to. And one of the great things about evidence-based strategies is that a lot of them involve art as well as science. Amazingly, and especially like the most effective ways to communicate about evidence-based strategies is not by explaining to you the R-squareds or the effect size, but by telling stories, offering metaphors, and singing songs. Yeah. So fortunately for us, I have a public health background and Amelia is a musician. Yeah, works out. Between us. <laughs> yeah. But here we are at episode 34. and uh, We haven't talked about the Mad Woman. We haven't talked about the Mad Woman. Which is such an intense and important aspect of survival in a hellscape like 2020 that we talk about it all the time. We refer to it all the time. And we have kept saying, go back and listen to the Mad Woman episode. Yeah. And like, we never did that. And then we checked and I was like, I mean, I, yeah, what? (laughs) Yeah. Okay. So So here it is now. We're fixing that. Okay. So what's the Mad Woman? Can we, it's been a while since we did sort of like a brush up the basics. What the fuck are, what is our approach here on the Feminist Survival Project? Yeah, let's do the thing. I'm going to do this, like, uh, it turns out the skills that help us deal with our stress are basically separate from the skills that help us deal with the things that cause our stress. And we have to use both sets of skills. The good news is that because these skills are separate, we can do them both simultaneously. We don't have to wait for the things that cause our stress, like the patriarchy and white supremacy and fascism to go away before we begin to feel better. Yay! Yay! Um, So what this podcast has done is tried to provide a set of tools to go in your wellness survival toolkit. And we have a sort of quick user's guide, three principles for how to use these tools. Here they are real quick. One, wellness is not a state of mind. It is not even a state of being, 
Wellness is a state of action. It is moving freely through these cycles and oscillations that are built into mammalian bodies. This means granting your body opportunities for rest and work and rest again and work for connection and autonomy, back to connection, back to autonomy, to feel stress and process it and find your way to safety inside your body. That's one, the first so, user. wellness is not the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. It's all of the colors of the rainbow. Right. Two, the care for burnout is not self-care. Self-care is the fallout shelter you build in your basement because apparently it's your job to protect yourself from nuclear war. The cure, instead, is all of us caring for each other. When you think you need more grit, what you need is more help. When you think you need more discipline, what you need is more kindness and compassion. And when you look at others and think they need more grit, they need to work harder, what they need is more help. And when you look at them and think they need more discipline, they need to be more focused, what they need is more kindness and compassion. That's two. Do you have a metaphor for that one too? I don't. That's just it. That's just that's just the thing. Three, these previous two ideas, wellness is a state of action and it's not about self-care, it's about all of us caring for each other. These things are part of the larger solution. They're not just ways to survive while we work toward that larger solution. When the needs of our bodies take up as much space and time as they truly require... And when we turn toward each other's needs with kindness and compassion, we are already rejecting the forces of white supremacists as heteropatriarchal, wildly exploitative, late capitalism. Those are the three rules. One, wellness is a state of action. The cure for burnout isn't self-care, it's all of us caring for each other. And three, when we embrace those things, we are not taking a break from fixing the world. We are in that moment of feeling better and taking care of ourselves. We are fixing the world. Because we are part of the world. Because we are part of the world, and so is everyone that we are working together with. Yeah. When they take breaks to care for their bodies, they are not abandoning us. They are not turning their backs on the work. They are doing the work. It's like okay. saying when you stop for gas on the highway that you've abandoned your you've journey. You've abandoned your journey. No. No, no. Just stop for gas. in the tank. I got to pee and grab a drink, and I'm getting back in the car after. Right. So those are the three sort of ground rules for using the tools. And there are three groups of tools altogether. The first is a set of tools that eliminates the actual causes of the damage. Most of those things are beyond the scope of the podcast. That's So that's the actual political stuff. That's the activism. That's helping people register to vote. It is voting. It is advocating for changes in policies and practice. It's the government in your workplace, in your home, creating active change. It's we mostly those... don't. Yeah, we mostly don't talk about that because those are solutions to specific problems and we know that everybody has specific situations and specific problems we're not here to deal with the things that cause your stress directly yeah we mostly don't deal with the behaviors that address the stressors we address the stress itself which is the next two categories of tools the second category of tools is those that heal the wounds so these are things that undo the damage that's been done to your body and mind and heart by all those stressors, the shitty things. It's your bubble of love. That's an episode and it's healing. It's rest. That's, I think, three episodes. Three, at least three. And it's healing. It's completing the stress response cycle, which is literally episode two. Mm-hmm. It's engaging with your something larger, which as early in the episode is being kind to your abyss, which is the, the chasm that exists in your heart of the gap between who you are and who the world expects you to be. These things are often effortful and they're not usually fun, but they do leave you more whole 
than you were before. Yeah. Uh, so that's one set of tools. And a lot of what we talk about is that. And then there's a third set of tools, which we also talk about, which is the pain management tools, which is the strategies we use to tolerate pain when it's too much to handle because too much suffering, being in too much pain slows down healing and causes further damage even. So we have a whole series of things on like drinking and <laughs> other ways that, and entertainment and art and other things we use to distract ourselves or to like lay a bandage and like some neosporin on the wounds that have been inflicted. Yeah. Some of it is actual healing. A lot of it is just pain management. And those, mm -hmm. so those two categories are really important. And the thing we're talking about today is remarkably one that does all three. Mm -hmm. It's, I mostly think of it as a heal the wound tool, but it also does heal the pain. And it also is a really essential tool at dealing with the stressors, at dealing with um, we're going to talk about it in the context of white supremacy because we're recording this in early June of 2020. And it's day nine of the enormous protests over when, George Floyd's When we're recording death. this, when it goes up, it'll be day 14-ish. Okay, so what is it? Get to it, Emily. Okay. We're 10 minutes in. Do the thing. Right. Befriend your mad woman. That's the skill. Yeah. So Amelia, explain to us who the mad woman is. The mad woman is a part of your mind that develops as you grow and learn to be a person in the world, it's a part of your mind that observes the chasm between who the world expects you to be and who you actually are. When so, in my life does my mad woman start to notice this chasm? Extremely early. Extremely Before early. Before you were consciously aware or could possibly articulate, hey, that thing you expected of me is not a thing that comes naturally to me or makes me uncomfortable. Like two or three. So here she is receiving information about like who we're supposed to be and starting to recognize that who we actually are inside uh, is not a fit for that. Okay, yeah. then what? And she has to decide. There's this chasm between you and expected you and she has to decide who's wrong. Do you have to jump the chasm and go meet the world where it wants you to be? Or is it the world that's the problem causing you to have to be something that you are not? And so she has to make a decision about whose fault it is, basically. Yeah. Is it the world's fault for having a bullshit expectation of you? Or is it your fault for being bullshit and falling short of a reasonable expectation? And if you are raised and socialized feminine in the Western world, probably her default becomes you. You are the problem. You are broken. You need to hide what you are. And you need to become what the world thinks you should be. So she beats the crap out of you. She beats the crap out of you, yeah. In order to, like, force you to punish you for failing to be yeah. what the world expects you to be. She she causes suffering, and mm -hmm. she, it's very uncomfortable. And sometimes she looks out at the world and defensively says, no, fuck you, world, that's not right. What you're declaring about me is bullshit, and I'm going to lash out at you instead. yeah. And she's full of rage, so she's she does so not angry. communicate in a loving, respectful way that, that, you know, just identifies your boundaries and establishes common ground. No, 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 no. She, she, she calls the police. Yeah. When the mad woman is in charge, bad things happen, and we will talk about that. Um, yeah. So why do we call her the mad woman? Is that not ableist? Um, it could be, but, like, we both have diagnosed long-term treatment mental illnesses, so I kind of feel like that's our word and we're allowed to use it. 
But also it comes from a literary heritage. Not all things that come from an ancient literary heritage are valuable and useful. But this one I'm, I, I kind of like. It also comes specifically from the best book ever written, Jane Eyre by Charlotte Bronte. And by best book ever written, we mean Amelia's favorite book. But I don't, okay, so I have things that I love that I think are not great. Like, it's not good, but I love it. But this Sure, is... all our favorites are problematic. Yeah. Insert Emily's attachment to Gone with the Wind here. Right, oh, yeah. God. So this is both very good and I love it. Okay, so spoiler alert if you haven't read Jane Eyre. It must be great so. to have your favorite not be so, like, hideously, like... I mean, just... it's, it is super racist, probably. I mean, if you look at the larger context, it's also, I mean, it's old. So, I mean, so yeah, it's got problems. Like, it's not totally problem free. Um, but it's not gone with the wind. But it's not fucking gone with the wind, yo. <laughs> no. Yeah, it is. It is. Be- okay. So, anyway. okay. Jane Eyre. She is a young governess who goes to take care of this ward of Mr. Rochester they fall in love, they're going to get married, and then on the day of the wedding, speak now or forever hold your peace, dude stands up in the back and says, Mr. Rochester's already married, he can't take another wife. And it turns out, yes, he's got a wife living in his attic. She's insane, and because this is like the early 1800s, they can't divorce on the grounds of insanity. He just has to like stay married to her and never marry anyone else again. And she, he's got a madwoman in his attic. And, you know, don't we all... <laughs> Anyway, Shia ends up, before Jane and Rochester went to try to get married, the madwoman was this secret mystery in the house. Like, ooh, who's that crazy lady? And there's this kind of red herring of, is it Grace or la la la. And she kind of sneaks in to like stare at Jane in the middle of the night. And uh, she sets Rochester's uh, bed curtains on fire. And Jane saves Rochester from that fire. So after Jane leaves because she can't marry him and it's inappropriate for her to live with him anymore, she runs away to protect herself. A couple of months later, the madwoman burns that big house down and Rochester has escaped. He's watching his house burn down and he sees the madwoman. Her name is Bertha, by the way, Bertha Mason. He sees Bertha on the battlements at the top of the house and he rushes up back into the burning house to save her and she jumps and is destroyed. He, in the rescue attempt, loses a hand and an eye, which is a biblical reference. Okay, so there's this 100-something-year-old book, 200-year-old book. Almost, yeah. That we're using, but it's not just the book, it's that there's been a tradition of feminist literary criticism that uses this phrase. Yeah, and also, the whole reason we, you and I, when we examine these things, we look at art because art can explain truths about the human condition that just explanations with words can't. That's just what artists do. They live their lives in connection with their own mental states, with their own emotional processes, and they seem to be able to communicate something true through fiction or through images. So we don't just like tell the story, look, here's this neat story, but it's a metaphor. And whether or not Charlotte Bronte knew she was describing like the inner psyche and that you, every individual has their own madwoman, she was before Jung and Freud. There was no construct of subconscious when she was alive um, and writing. And yet, when we look at really touching, moving, powerful stories, they do seem to work like this as metaphors for the self. 
So we took this story and we applied it to the evidence-based strategies for tolerating self-criticism and for transforming it into self-compassion. Self-compassion is a highly evidence-based intervention. Self-compassion has three components, self-kindness, which is exactly what it sounds like, common humanity, which is the ways that I suffer are shared by all humans. It is part of what it means to be a human being. I'm not separated by my suffering from others. I am connected through my suffering to other people. And then the third is just mindfulness, which is ability to be neutrally aware, non-judgmentally aware of what's happening inside your body and allowing it to move through you. Mm -hmm. um, which feelings are tunnels. You have to move all the way through them to get to the light at the end. That's the thing I say very often. It turns out if you're a person with serious trauma history or neglect history, the practice of self-compassion initially can activate a stress response to make you feel even more stressed than before you tried it. It's complicated why, but we needed to find a way of talking about self-compassion that would work for all of our readers, not just the readers who come from a relatively stable trauma-free background, because let's face it, that's not a large proportion of our readership. Mm -hmm. So what we found was a very diverse range of clinical interventions that all shared in common this idea of creating space between you and just like that noisy, mean bitch in your head that stranger who feels like it's okay to say cruel things to you. For a lot of people, it'll be a personification of that voice, that all like the mean things that, that that person says to you that are things you would never say, not to a stranger on a bus. You would never say the kinds of things that this mean lady says to you. So you create a separateness between you and that voice. And your job is to, in the same way that Rochester tries to run up to the top of the house and save the madwoman who set his house on fire, he ran up to save her. Your job is to turn toward this mean lady with kindness and compassion. Recognize that her meanness is coming from a place of despair, helplessness, a powerful, overwhelming desire to protect you from the forces of a world that would punish you and exclude you and kill you for all the ways that you have fallen short of its expectations. The deal is the madwoman grows up in your psyche in that cavernous chasm between who you really are and who the world expects you to be. And it's her job to manage and negotiate that difference. And it's an impossible job. It is not possible to manage such a vast chasm between who you really are and who the world is. And if you had an impossible job, you would be crazy too. So we can have true compassion for this part of our psyche that has this ridiculous, impossible, unfair task. So when she starts to beat the shit out of us, we don't try to silence her because that's the thing a lot of people sort of like in the pop, the pop culture mainstream representation of what to do. We don't yeah. try to silence her because if you try to silence her, she's just going to go more crazy. Instead, you turn toward her with kindness and compassion. So let me give you an example of my own actual personal lived experience of when I did it. Okay. So before you do that, I want to like explain why you don't just silence her. Okay. Imagine you really want to keep somebody safe. So you're being the mad woman now. And you're telling this person, this is really important. I want to keep you safe. And they just go, shut up. No, this is really important. I want to keep you safe. Stop it. Shush. You're not important. What you have to say doesn't matter. I'm trying to keep you safe. If they just shut you up, you're just going to get madder and meaner and louder. So if that person turns to you and says, 
What do you need me to hear? What do you need me to know? And you get to get it off your chest and pour it all out. That feels so much better. Yeah. And then the other person can, the person that you're trying to protect can respond and hear and be like, I hear how important this is to you. I hear that your motivation is to keep me safe. What can we do to make sure you feel like I am not in danger? And especially in our sort of like metaphorical example of the madwoman whose job in our minds is to keep us safe, change the relationship that we've had. Because again, this started when we were small, started when we were little kids. Change the relationship to say, I know you're trying to keep me safe and I'm a grown up now and I know how to do this. And how can I help you to trust me to know how to manage this, to know how to tolerate it? when I do fall short of the world, that I am not going to be abandoned forever and isolated and die alone and then be eaten by dogs. How can, like, what can, how can I help you to know that? So don't ignore your inner critic. Turn toward her with kindness and compassion and show her that you are prepared to take care of yourself. Which is not easy to say or think about, and it's even harder to do. <laughs> so, so tell us about how you did it once, Emily. I did it this one time. Um, So I generally travel a lot for work, pandemic permitting. And this one time, so I had this event in my calendar. I am meticulous about my calendar keeping. I was in my calendar for the Sunday at 10 o'clock. Saturday, the day before that, at 10 o'clock, I get a text. Hi, Emily. We're ready to start. Are you upstairs? I had put the event in my calendar for the wrong day. I was in my house in my pajamas and my car was under a foot of snow. I was not going to be able to get to this meeting that I had promised to be at. I had fucked up and there was no way to fix it. All I could do was apologize and promise them that I would try to do better. So I did, I did the things that you do when you fuck up. You are accountable, you are remorseful, you try to make amends, like I did all the things. And so obviously after I did all those things, which are the ways that you deal with the stressor, uh, I felt better. I felt really calm and I felt okay with myself. (laughs) No. (laughs) For half an hour after I sent the last groveling email, I sat on the couch just like feeling my madwoman beating the shit out of me for failing in this irredeemable way. Like there was no way to fix it. I was a failure and my mad woman was totally sure that because I had missed this meeting and fallen short of the world's expectations for me and my expectations for myself, that I was going never to be invited ever to do anything again. Everybody hated me. They were going to talk shit about me. I would not have a career anymore and I was going to like die alone. Yeah. Very rational, these thoughts. Yeah. And so I, and like, so I felt this happening inside me and it like half an hour is a long time to like sit there just being like, oh my God, I fucked up so bad. (laughs) So I was like, what, what do we say in the book to do at this point? What do we say to do? Shit. Okay. This is my mad woman and I got to turn toward her with kindness and compassion. So I sit in there in my living room. I closed my eyes and I turned toward my mad woman and I said, I'm going to listen to you. Tell me what you need. Tell me what you're afraid of. And she said all these things about like, I'm afraid that when you screw up like this, uh, you are not going to be able to do your work. You're not going to be able to have relationships with anyone and you're going to be excluded forever. And it was very much like an elementary school junior high social isolation 
feeling that was coming from the mad woman, this like mean lady in my head. And when I gave her space to talk about all the fear that she had for me, all the ways that she longed to keep me safe, she then started talking about how exhausting it was to monitor so intensely, to be so afraid all the time. And she got really sad and small. And the whole thing transitioned from me like trying to create space for this big monster in my head to this really small, fragile little girl who I could absolutely with confidence as an adult say, like I have people in my life who are not gonna leave no matter how many times I fuck up my calendar. There are people who are going to keep me safe. Like, I can protect you. You're working really hard to protect me and you're so tired. And it's not, it doesn't have to be your job all the time because I can do a bunch of this work. So with the kindness and compassion, I could say to this part of myself, thank you for helping me and you can trust me and I can help you now too. And you can take a rest and it's going to be okay. And so this does not, none of this undid the fact that I fucked up and I missed this meeting. Nothing that I did would be able to do that. But turning toward my self-critical madwoman with kindness and compassion helped me to transition into a better state of mind so that I could become more pragmatic about like, what's a better system for managing my calendar? Are there things I can change to prevent this from happening again? How can I be in the best possible mental space to show up to the next event without walking around with a giant thundercloud of self-doubt around my head because I'm not that's not me at my best that's not me doing my work as powerfully as I can does that make sense yes and what this looks like on the outside is just me sitting on the couch crying (laughs) which is why it takes art to expose what that experience is like yeah this is you know our trauma episode where Amelia has the song this is why the stories are full of magic what it looks like on the outside is like Not just boring me being sad, mm-hmm. which that's every day now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But what it looks like on the inside is this like epic story of relationship with this like creature who lives inside me. Yeah. So do you want to talk about Moana now? Yes, because the personification of my mad woman is actually Tika, the lava monster. Yeah. At the end, yeah. At the end. So Tika, the lot. we're going to spoil Moana. I think we've spoiled Moana before. But yeah. so Moana notices that Tika, this lava monster, has, the lava monster is her final enemy. The last thing she needs to conquer before she can uh, achieve her goal of restoring the heart of Tefiti, the Tefiti being the goddess of life and abundance and stuff like that. Um, and she notices that Tika, this big, scary lava monster, has a swirl over her heart that matches the swirl on the heart of Tefiti, which is this glowing green stone. And Moana realizes that she holds in her hand the heart of her own worst enemy. And instead of feeling like she needs to battle Teka, she needs to turn toward Teka and offer her with courage and compassion the thing she most needs, which is her own heart. So she holds up the glowing green stone and gets these scary lava monsters attention and when i saw the lava monster illustrated in the on the big screen in the movie theater go turning i was like it me that that is yes yep and moana with the wind blowing in her hair tells the ocean 
let her come to me. And, and the ocean point, parts. The ocean parts and it goes in like a line. It opens up towards Teka. And there's this moment when Teka sees that the ocean has opened up and Moana has cleared a path between them. There's this surprise look of like a puppy dog. What? Just for a moment that it's not negative. She's just what? A little confused and surprised and maybe even a little hopeful. How do they make a lava monster look confused and surprised and possibly a little hopeful? I don't know. But also maybe a little scared because clearly she's dealing with someone who's not just a teenage girl with curly hair, but is instead, you know, commander of the ocean. Yeah. So then it's not long. It's like maybe one breath later, she just flails and starts crawling toward Moana. Yeah. Should I keep going? Yeah, sum it up for us. Okay, so she's, with the wind blowing in her hair, she strides with courage and compassion toward the scary lava monster. She sings to her and she, the lava monster like realizes that she's like, Moana is not gonna run. She holds eye contact with the lava monster right up to the last second until they are forehead to forehead. And she, they breathe each other's air, which is what Aloha and the, for, and the forehead to forehead touches about in Polynesian culture. Moana restores the heart and the fire turns to ash and it crumbles away and reveals that lava, the lava monster Teka was Tefiti, the goddess of abundance and life after all. So if we can turn toward the moral of the story is if we can turn with compassion, kindness, and courage toward our own worst enemy, it will turn out that that enemy was actually the ultimate source of abundance, life, and creativity living inside us all along. She turns into Tefiti. And, and it's a powerful, moving, well-told story. But people don't cry without the song. Not as much, maybe. But the Definitely song... not. People cry with the song. Yeah. So I actually want to dig into why the song works so well. Before we do this, yeah. I want to clarify a thing. Okay. Um, when you say that Teka sings, what do you mean? Um, Teka, okay. You have to buy into a couple of truths about music. That music represents a subtext, a, a level of nonverbal communication that happens possibly below the level okay, of conscious Okay, no, go back to that. What I'm saying is, do you mean the part that's in another language? No, I mean the harmony itself. What harmony? That harmony. The drone? The the chord progression, the harmony. It's not particular notes. It's the way the notes are combined to create a harmony. Teka is the harmony. So the... First she's not individual notes. She's not melody. She is the heart. It's not the chord itself. It's the color of the chord, the flavor of the chord, the relationship of one chord to another. Is it different from when we hear this song when it is Innocent Warrior? Because that song is the voice of the ocean. I don't know. That's the song. It's the song that we hear when the ocean opens and shows her the heart. I'm looking it up. Because I feel like the meaning that you're putting on the song doesn't conform with no this is already different i'm listening to it and it's already different okay how is it different also that's in major so no okay well so that'll be the thing is that this this tune is introduced to us as innocent warrior as the ocean speaking to her 
I and tried to simply plays in the background. Okay, the issue is that I wrote out this explanation for Emily and she was like, I don't get it. And I'm like, it'll be better when I explain it. And the reason is because you are thinking of that background. Oh ma da da do 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 and, the, and the drone. That is the sound um, of the Yeah. Um, all of that is a third um, thing that exists. That's the ocean itself singing. There's a third thing? <laughs> There's a third thing. Okay. I was trying to simplify it by only talking about the conversation between Moana and the ocean. I mean, sorry, between Moana and Teka. See, I didn't hear Teka at all in the song. Right, because Teka is not a separate part. Teka is the structure. Oh, see, this is why I didn't understand it. Okay, okay, go. Because Teka is the structure of the story also. Yes. Teka is the key where we live, but not the key where we live because it's not the same key Moana's in. Okay. Um, let me just do a little bit of music theory background so you can get the language of it. This is a lie, but for the sake of like straightforward explanation, let's say that there's only one way of combining pitches into scales. And that's the way that's if you play all white keys on a keyboard, I'm sitting in front of my piano, which is out of tune, but whatever. So I can just run my hand up the keyboard on all white keys. And those are the only notes we can use to create the kind of scales that we are used to. Do you buy that? Sure. Let's just, yep. for now, let's pretend Everything's that's true. in the key of C. The only uh, key yes. that exists. As a matter of fact, you can be in any key. Uh, no, uh, no, it's and not play in the white key keys. of C. White it's keys. not in the key of C. We have white key notes, and we call them all syllables. Like, do, re, mi, fa, sol, la, ti. And then we just go back to do again, and we repeat the whole thing. Do, re, mi, fa, sol etc yeah yeah i've i've seen sound of music exactly so doe a deer a female deer is what we get when we combine a scale into a way that what is what we call major right so if i play all white keys starting on the note that i'm going to call doe i get that sound but if i go from do to t to la and i use la as my starting note I've got, I've still got my do, re, mi, fa, sol, la, ti, do, re, mi, fa, sol, la. I've just started and ended on la, but it's all the same notes combined and accented different ways. And this already is enough of a metaphor that we could spend an hour talking about the ways that all the same notes can be used in all these variety of different ways and the language and the way that we talk about who we are when we're all made of the same thing, but we communicate in different ways. Yeah. But for our purposes, in a major key, do is home. In a minor key, la is home. Exactly. Or tonic. Home tonic. Um, There's another important note. It's called the dominant. And it's not really just the home note that makes a home note that key. It's the relationship between the home note and the dominant. So in in a do major key, you have do and then do, ti, la, so, do. So that's the do, re, mi, fa, so, one, two, three, four, five. Fifth note of the scale is the dominant, so, do. And that relationship between so and do is dominant to tonic. That's how we define a major scale. Good. Talk to me in music 101 as the perfect fifth interval. Um, from do up to so is a perfect fifth. Yes. That's Star Wars and Superman and 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 yeah. Super and strong. And like half of John Williams, basically. Uh, all, half of all John Williams, exactly. Like, and there's a reason and all that. Yeah, there's a reason. It's because these are the two most important notes in the scale. It establishes strength and clarity. But when we're in minor, La is the home note in minor. So we go la, di, do, re, mi. Mi is the fifth. Mi is the dominant. La, mi, la, mi, la. Okay? Yeah. So, so 
When we begin the scene, we are way, way in D minor, like hardcore in D minor. There's no doubt about it. There's this that goes on. It's like, I'm in D minor, la, mi, la, uh, sorry, la, do, la, do, la, do, la. Right, and that's over the part that is again. not in the first time we hear this tune, which is Innocent Warrior, and there's the ocean singing. Right. This is the background. This is the structure. This is establishing the environment. And then, yes, the ocean comes in and sings. That's the ocean, does that little thing. Yeah. And then Moana comes in, and she's in the same, she starts in the same note as the ocean. And Teikawa is on La. Moana comes in on So. What's the important thing about So? If it were a major key, it would be the dominant? It's dominant and major. And then she sings So Fa Mi Re Do. It's a scale in major that emphasizes dominant and tonic in major. So she hears the minor. She hears it happening. And she's just like, okay, I hear those notes. No, I'm, I'm in those major. Notes, but you know what? Hey, how about major? And then the ocean does it too. Yep. Clear? And Teika hears. And that same, like, questioning, whoop, that was first, uh, that we first saw her do when she saw the ocean open up. Yeah. She does that in harmony by going here. She goes to fa. Now, in major, fa is kind of important. In minor, fa is really not important. It's a very strange choice. We're going to find out why later. Um, so we go from la, minor, to Moana going, hey girl, hey girl, hey major. And Teika going, what? B flat, what? Fa, huh? And what does Moana do next? She repeats, so, so, do, do. Dominant, tonic, tonic, tonic. And so does the ocean. Repeats the same thing. And that is so compelling. I know your name, so, so, do, do. Every John Williams score ever. So confident, so clear that Teika goes, yeah. Teika goes to major two. Teika goes to do. And that is the part of the journey. This is where it switches. This is where it turns into something that's like really clearly going to be healing, but it's not done yet. So we've gone from major, sorry, from minor to hey girl, hey. To what? No, for real. Hey, how about some major? Okay, major. Oh no. The major only lasts for one measure, four stupid little beats, and Teika regresses immediately back to minor, back to law. No, ah! And Moana hears that happen. And instead of ending on do, like she does every other time, she ends up, she goes up to me. Do you remember why me is important? They have is the stolen the heart from inside you, is yeah, the lyrics there. Yeah, me, me is the dominant of minor. Oh, and it's on the word you. You! Me is the dominant of minor. Moana is finding Teika where she's at and meeting her and reinforcing where she is and who she is and what she has to say. Get it? Yeah, I get it. I got it now. I hear you go to minor and I'm gonna support that minor right there. And Teika's tired, right? She just sinks down. From D, from, uh, so, uh, where am I? From La down to So. But so is also the dominant in major. Maybe she's going to go back. Nope, she doesn't. She just stays there. And Moana singing, but this does not define. She's so, so, do, do, trying to go back to major. But she can't. She hears that it doesn't work, and she concedes. And she resolves to T. There's been no T 
yet so far. That's an interesting note. That's just her finding Teka. But it's still you. It. This is not to find you. The T is you. Exactly. In Teka's chord, in Teka's harmony, then the ocean comes in. And we go back to Fa again. So Teka has gone from D, sorry, from La to So. Now she goes to Fa. She just sinks down. And remember, Fa was that weird chord. That was her questioning chord. That raw response to Moana's like, hey girl, hey, how about major? And she's like, what? She's come back here again. And now Moana floats up to the top of her range and she starts this phrase on La. she hasn't started on do or so she starts on law so law is the tonic in the minor law is the tonic in the minor teka is not totally in minor now she's on fa in that like halfway in between place and moana's like girl i hear you minor and then she ends on so she's still kind of be like hey girl hey how about some some major and teka's like nope i'm here i'm here on fa uh so when Moana finishes, she starts on La again, which goes with Fa, and then she has this leap up to So, which is the dominant in major. But then she gives up and she goes, she ends on Do, which is major, but Do, Do is the dominant of Fa. She finds Teka and says, yes, I hear you. This is where you are. Me too. She's on Do, but Do is the dominant of Fa. So they establish this new relationship. And that's the journey of the harmony of Teka, as written by Lin-Manuel Miranda, who clearly understands the nature of the madwoman. The madwoman isn't just going to respond to you and be like, okay, great, everything's fine. The madwoman's going to have questions. And the madwoman's also not going to be what you expect her to be. She's going to land in her own place and become something new together with you. Also, Moana's backed up by the entire fucking ocean. Yes. With the song that is the moment that the ocean handed her the heart. Yes. And now the ocean is helping Moana hand the heart to Teka. But not in the same key. But not in the same key. With the same notes, but not harmonized the same way. Look, if we were just going to harmonize this, it ought to be this. I am crossing. This does not define you. This is not you are. You know who you are. That should be the harmony. But, but it's instead not. it's... It's fucking this. I have crossed the horizon to find you. I know your name. I have stolen the heart from inside you. But this does not define you. Well, not who not who. people don't cry without the song or they cry way more with the song yeah because the song does this other thing the song the harmony moves and tells us the journey take ka is going through and it probably says something about us that my focus is on but like look there's the ocean right there with her and you're like listen to what take ka is saying (laughs) 
right? This is what this interaction is like. And I tried to like think of a way to summarize this and be like, now I'll tell you what Teka does and I'll sum it all up and then I'll tell you what Moana does. But you can't do that because it matters how they respond to each other. It's Clearly the these shifts in harmony are reactions to Moana's insistence. Hey, doe, hey, major, hey, doe, hey, major. And Teka's like, I wanna, but, but that's, no. And did you do that in the song that you wrote for the Mad Woman? Uh, what I did in the song I wrote for the Mad Woman was I ended on fa. Actually, the melody ends on do, but the harmony ends on fa. So yes, a little bit. But before we get to the song, because I want to make sure people know that the payoff for listening to all of that and working to understand <laughs> music theory is that there's a song. <laughs> yeah. Is that we have to talk about what happens when the Mad Woman doesn't decide it's all your fucking fault and you're a useless piece of shit but yeah. instead does the very dangerous thing, sometimes justified thing, of lashing out at the world instead, that it's bullshit for the world to have these expectations. So the positive framework for when the mad woman lashes out at the world for having bullshit expectations is when she's lashing out at... when White, she's lashing out cis-hetero, patriarchy, rapidly exploitative capitalism. Yes. Um, and also fascism. And this is the now. origin of imposter syndrome. Yeah. I know imposter syndrome usually gets talked about in, frankly, let's face it, kind of misogynist terms that like women just struggle with self-esteem. They beat right. the shit out of themselves because they feel like they're not enough. That's not what imposter syndrome comes from. Imposter syndrome comes no. from a recognition that uh, people who fall outside the dominant group have to force themselves into a shape that is not themselves, have to wear masks and pretend to be something they're not in order to be accepted and move fluidly through this fucked up world. Yeah. And that creates this dissonance, this sense that you are an imposter because you're having to pretend something that you're not in yeah. order to be not killed sometimes. In because the world. the world is not built for you and therefore you have to restructure yourself in order to move through the world. And it is functional and adaptive to be enraged about that. Yeah. That's yes. fair enough. Yes. And but, then there are other times. Yeah, you need to get good at turning toward the mad woman so that you can recognize when the external expectations are bullshit and fucked up and when we just sometimes fail because we're the ones who fucked up. So I want to tell you, um, let's call it a fictional story right now, stripped of uh, all signifiers. And it's just, here's a child, here is a young person who is raised to be praised when they follow the rules, when they are good, when they are successful within the structure of the system. And sometimes in order to be successful in the system, they have to actually break the rules, but they can never let anybody see that they have broken the rules because then they'll be outed as a person who breaks the rules and they could be punished or destroyed, certainly lose all hope of love and belonging. If that definitely, happens, right? I definitely feel like that's probably a pretty common situation for most of us in some circumstances. It absolutely is, for sure, which is why I'm telling it this way. Yeah. That, like, all of us sometimes have to, like, flex the rules or feel motivated to, like, not quite follow the rules, to yeah. bend them and feel like it's going to be okay for us because we're not going to get caught and then nobody's going to know and we will have gotten the thing that we needed in order to make it look like we are doing the thing. Yeah, in our home structure where the rules be. really belong to us and we feel safe and comfortable You can push that system. in that yeah. way. Again, yeah. as long as nobody sees that right. you did it, right. then your success, it looks as though it's just by following the rules and being good at what you do. 
-hmm. Does that make sense so far? Yeah. Now suppose somebody comes along and sees you breaking the rules. Don't. They see you. They spot you. And no matter how gently they say, I see you breaking the rule. Could you please not break the rule? Mm-hmm. Your mad woman will be engaged. This this person has like a chasm between themselves and who they really are. And they have just been spotted being who they really are in all the ways that they fail to be who they're expected to be. And the mad woman has two choices. Either like beat the person up or beat the external world up. Now, this person has been caught breaking a rule that is a rule. Mm-hmm. And uh, so... Sometimes a toxic choice that a mad woman can make is to harness the power of their perceived goodness to destroy the person who caught them because only by destroying the person who caught them breaking the rule can they destroy any knowledge that they ever broke that rule. And maintain their identity of who the world expects them to be. Right. Which is so important for safety. You have to be who the world expects you to be or you are not safe. Right. Or you'll be excluded from the world forever. Right. Just, which is you, not safe. You'll be destroyed yourself. And obviously, like, based on what you've heard us talk about in this episode so far, the thing to do is to notice that that fear has been activated. The mad woman and her fear and rage and despair at trying to manage this unbridgeable chasm between who you are and who the world expected you to be. It gets inflamed inside your body and you go, oh, hello, mad woman. I see that you are afraid and I am not willing to destroy someone else in order to uh, sustain the idea that expected me is real because who I truly am is bigger and better than just expected me and you can trust me. Also, I'm the adult in the room and I recognize that you are afraid for my life. You think that I'm not safe if I'm rejected, but I know that I am safe. I'm gonna be fine. I got caught, you know, breaking this rule, but that is not going to hurt me. Not physically. I know that rationally. Even though you, yes. mad woman, are deeply afraid, I'm here to tell you, you have nothing to be I'm afraid gonna be of. Safe. We're going to be fine. Right? So you listen in, to, to your own mad woman and you like take a deep breath and you don't react as though your identity, your whole self is at stake. Instead, yeah. you respond to the person who said, I see you breaking that rule. Can you not break the rule? You do what I did when I missed my fucking meeting and like make amends. You experience remorse. You apologize with your whole heart and you do what you can to fix it. Right. Mm -hmm. And instead what we get and like, I really, we try so often on the podcast not to talk about current events, but instead if you get somebody who's like, I have to destroy the person who saw me break the rules so that I can be not destroyed myself Um, And you get Amy Cooper, the white lady in Manhattan walking her dog off leash and a birder, somebody looking at birds was like, hey, could you put your dog on a leash? Because he wanted to look at birds. You know what's not good for birds? Dogs. Sorry. Yeah. And instead of her being like, yeah, you're right. Sorry about that. And just putting her dog on a leash. She, um, if you have seen the video or heard about the video, you know that what she did was threaten to call the police and say that an African-American man is threatening her life. And then he's like, please call the police because this birder is an African-American man. Mm -hmm. We will go on later in the news to learn more of his backstory, which makes him look just like an increasingly, I mean, 
only by singing in an acapella group could he be more <laughs> just like deeply harmless and lovable as a person. He watches birds recreationally. Right. This is the nicest guy ever. I have Clearly. zero interest in birding. <laughs> and like, if I met somebody who's like, I'm a birder, I'd be like, okay. and uh, I can trust you with anything. <laughs> My husband puts out bird feeders and watches birds and talks about birds. And it's like the most adorable thing to be like fascinated by birds. It's really cute. So instead, so she threatens this thing. She yeah. threatens to call the police. And she knows for sure the reason she does this is because she knows that, like, the police are not going to hurt her if she calls them. And they could hurt him. He oh, yeah. will be afraid oh, of the yeah. police because he has reason to be afraid of the police. The tragedy of this call, the deeper sort of context for this, is that it was only a couple of days later that George Floyd was mm -hmm. killed by Murdered. police. Yeah. And that is what she was invoking when she yeah. called the police. And yeah. there's been a lot of conversation about the fact that when she made that call to 911 and said she was being threatened by an African-American man in Central Park, her voice went into this high-pitched, fearful squeak that had no relationship to the actual external facts of what was going on. There was no way she felt actually threatened by no. this birder. Yeah. Whose tone she, of voice we could hear in the video was, like, very neutral. Yeah. What she was truly scared. There's, like, all kinds of things about, like, she's faking it. Mm, I think I think she's probably not that good an actress. I think instead she had true fear of being found out. Yeah. Of being discovered in breaking the rules. And this is her mad her woman entire, just I, her, I, taking yeah, charge of her behavior. Of her vocal cords. Yes, because that's what voices are made for, for that expressing what what's voices... deep, deep, deep in your darkest fear. Expressing fear is like the primary purpose of a voice to share with your community. Scary thing happening, help. And in this case, the scary thing that was happening is not the external events, but her right. emotional reaction to having been caught. Yes. Not conforming to the culturally constructed ideal for her. Yeah. And this is a person who is like super successful in the yeah. larger culture and has probably spent a lot of time piling on layers of disguise over the ways that she has to break the rules in order to right. be able to get to that oh, level yeah. of success. Oh, yeah. And the whole foundation of this dynamic is that she has not dealt with her madwoman. She has mm -hmm. not confronted the basic injustice in which her madwoman grew up. Yep. That her madwoman is actually a symptom of the larger injustices in the culture. Yeah. And this is why we say that one of the most important things we can do as white ladies who try is to, to heal, heal your own shit. shit. Get to know your madwoman. Come to understand Befriend your insecurities. Her. Turn yes. toward her minor key. <laughs> Sing the dominant. Sing the dominant in her key. Yeah. If you can. If you can't, find it. You might have to take, you know, it takes a couple of tries. It took Moana like four tries. And like, you're going to fuck up. We fuck this up. Olive is perfect. Yawning at me. <laughs> <sighs> Sorry. So we fuck this up still. You're going to fuck this up before you like really master it. Heal your shit. You're going to fuck up. You're going to fuck up. Uh, the idea is to catch it earlier and earlier so that you catch it before you uh, threaten uh to murder by cop someone <laughs> i don't want to yeah. say it that dark 
<laughs> I think, uh, I don't know. Yeah. Or way earlier than that. Yeah, you want to be able to catch it much, much earlier before it turns into that. You want to recognize that these things live inside you, yeah. not because you are an inherently bad person, but because you are a person who inherently does not match what the world has said you are supposed to be because no one matches what yeah. the world said you were supposed to be. Yeah. And that's okay. The yeah. goal is just not to use that pain as a weapon against somebody else. Yeah. And I suspect that this is a, a refrain we hear, especially from white women over and over because it's white women who are working so hard to fight misogyny yeah. and they have to fight that fight so hard and their lives are made so difficult by systemic misogyny that that fight has hardened them to the possibility that they might have some flaw that makes them hurt someone else. Right. <sighs> Don't let misogyny make you be racist. Yeah. TLDR. Learn how to deal with misogyny, heal your shit, so that then you can turn around and help other people. Does that make sense? I hope that makes sense. I find this analogy incredibly helpful in recognizing when my defensiveness bubbles up inside me, either beating the shit out of me or taking it out on somebody else. Mm -hmm. I do know that anytime I hear a white lady say, I'm not a racist. Oh, God. Like, that's the sound yes. of their, that's their mad woman speaking. Yeah. And. Yeah. And, like, I'm sure they don't try to be racist. They're not, like... Of course not. They're not members of the KKK. They're just trying to get by as best they can. And getting by is hard when you're a woman. And this is what Even makes a white progressive woman. white ladies the most dangerous. Because we have all of this pain and hurt built up in our bodies and are just trying, like, wounded dogs to walk down the street and make it safely to our next place... And in order to, like, protect ourselves, if someone gestures in the direction of our pain, we lash out with our teeth. Yeah. Even though, even while we say, no, I'm just a nice little dog. Even while we know that other dog is also wounded. Right. We're so afraid of our own pain that we have disregard others. <sighs> Maybe this is why we didn't do a Mad Woman episode. Yeah. It is so powerful, though, when people can begin to turn with kindness and compassion toward their own madwoman to recognize when that thing rises up in them and to be calm and forgiving and courageous yeah. in that confrontation. And, man, if we can do it with each other and, like, I have crossed the horizon to find you, I know your name. They have stolen the heart from inside you, but this does not define you. This... I'm not a racist. This is not, this is who, not you who you are. You know, you know who, who you are. are. Who you truly are. Right? 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 Don't you want somebody to turn to you with that kind of courage and compassion? Yeah. And wouldn't if somebody did, wouldn't you just like your ashes crumble away and it would grant the opportunity for you to rise up like a goddess? And I, f I suspect that one of the problems white women have with anti-racist movements is that they're so focused on the oppression of people of color. And when you focus on someone else's oppression, it feels dismissing and invalidating of your own suffering. And sometimes they are explicitly dismissing and invalidating yes. of misogyny. There and that's is okay. absolutely anti-racist work that is misogynist. Yeah. And that, and that can be really hurtful to the mad woman who's like, my identity, your identity, we fit in this category. And that can be hard. Yeah. So, I mean, and the only answer to like 
get over that is to heal your shit. Get heal to heal your mad woman. Your shit. And it's not going to be a permanent, like, whole complete healing. In our Abyss episode, we spent a lot no. of time saying, like, a There's thing that's no going to have to no. happen is no. you have to learn how to be comfortable with the fact that there is a permanent abyss in your soul, a cavern yep. between yep. who you are and who the world expects you to be. Yep. Just remember that anti racist movements are not about the white ladies, and that's okay. There's supposed to be a movement. There that are is other things how it's supposed that are to about be. us. There are plenty of things that are about us. Yeah, there's plenty of things that are about us. This podcast is about us. This podcast is about us. You have this whole podcast. <laughs> so You're when you welcome. hear anti racist movements that feel dismissive of the plight of women, that's fine. That's okay. Not everybody has to care about the things that are important and hurtful to you. Like, we'll also work on that. There's time. So heal your mad woman, give her a big old hug, return the heart to the swirly bit in the middle, and uh, and you'll be able to engage without defensiveness and without lashing out and without having a lot of suffering and pain and, and beating yourself up. Because it's not actually necessary to maintain the delusion or the illusion that you are a good girl who never breaks the rules and therefore inherently deserves all the good things in your life without having to claim any privilege or having yeah. been granted anything you didn't actively earn with your own sweat. It's okay yeah. to just be the one who's trying to do the best they can with the resources they have available. That's fine. That's enough. So when we talk about this, I often use uh, imagery around caring for your inner child. Like my mad woman in that moment was maybe nine years old. Like the fear that rises up in me when I fall short comes from my sort of like pre-tween years of like approaching adolescence and getting a clearer and clearer sense that um, my value on earth could be measured by my being good at school and obedient, right? And so mm -hmm. instead of having this ragey lava monster, I had this little girl who was just so sad and exhausted and afraid. And I could hold her in my lap and like give her the loving kindness that like she didn't even know to ask for at the time, right? And yeah, that's the thing about the mad woman is she does not know what she needs. Yeah. She's just flailing around. Which is why she needs us as our best selves to show up for her and turn toward her with courage and kindness. Um, and so when I beat this often, like makes people cry. And so I suggested one, we're going to need a song for the mad woman. Because this is dark. This is so dark. Um, and it's such a long-term project. And it's just like a thing that we need to learn to tolerate. And two, since we need a song, it had better be a lullaby. Yeah. And so that's what we wrote. Yeah. And uh, so here we go. You're the one inside my head who sees the painful gap between the world and me. You're the mad woman and I take you by the hand. I'm here with you in that abyss. You warn me when something's amiss. Is it the world or me? Whose fault could it be? This time you decide it's me. You want to scream till I agree. I look in your eyes and see all of the lies they fed to us when we were small. When we had no defense at all. My best self takes over, gives the mad woman closure, just like the times when we were small, when we had no defense at all. 
And that is this episode of the Feminist Survival Project. If any of this was written, it was written by us. I'm Emily Nagoski. And Amelia Nagoski. To extent that it was produced, it was produced by my marital euphemism, music by... Amelia. You can follow our podcast on Instagram or Twitter at FSP2020, and you can email us at feministsurvivalproject2020 at gmail.com. Our website is feministsurvivalproject.com. Kindness is always welcome. I hope this helps. If it did, and you find yourself wanting to have a conversation about it with the other exhausted feminists in your life, uh, especially the other exhausted feminists who are white people, please do share it. And I hope you'll join us next week for another episode of the Feminist Survival Project 2020. Thanks for listening. I know your name, so so do do, every John Williams score ever. The Feminist Survival Project 2020 is a part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Find more podcasts you'll love at frolic.media slash podcasts.